Welcome to The Health Beat, a podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Neha Anand. And I'm Ali Burgess. In today's episode, we will hear more from our fellow medical students, Sara and Alyssa, about gender-based violence as a public health issue. Gender-based violence has a long history and has acutely worsened during the COVID-19 pandemic. How can healthcare professionals address the health effects and aim to prevent violence in the first place? Stay tuned to learn more. But first, I'm not sure if you heard the big news, Allie, but Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be our next president and vice president. Oh my gosh, I don't know how I could have missed the news. I heard car honking throughout my neighborhood. There were many tweets and memes rolling around throughout the internet. And actually, my household started playing Party in the USA pretty immediately after hearing the news. And we later learned that the song had broke through the iTunes Top 200 chart in the U.S. shortly after the election results were announced. Oh, wow. That is, that is quite a throwback song, but very relevant for this moment. So now that Joe Biden will be our next president, what does this mean for health and healthcare in the U.S.? I think the announcement is closely tied to the future for healthcare for Americans, particularly in relationship to COVID. Estimates suggest that about 100,000 more Americans will die of COVID-19 between now and the start of the next presidential term on January 20th without implementation of effective public health policies. So it's really important for Biden to start off strong. I remember watching Joe Biden's speech and him saying that all of his policies regarding COVID are going to be rooted in science. And the science of stopping a pandemic includes testing and contact tracing to the fullest extent possible to try to control the spread of the virus. So uh, I believe Joe Biden is in the process as we're recording and assembling a team of scientists and advisors for handling the COVID-19 pandemic. But do you have any idea of what we might expect to be in the plan? Yeah, so I think what you said about having it being root in science is really at the forefront. So I think that the plan will involve supporting science-backed vaccines and medical treatments that are being developed. It will involve increasing the amount of testing for Americans and providing free testing. Also, it will involve supporting essential healthcare workers. So boosting their pay, perhaps, for people that are working on the front lines and more sufficient PPE for healthcare workers, and really balancing the economy with better policies to prevent the spread of the virus. That part about balancing the economy is really interesting because the economy and the pandemic were both really big issues at stake for this election. It's worth noting that the economy and the pandemic are tied to each other, And, you know, to get the economy better, the pandemic needs to be more controlled. Yeah, exactly what you said. The economy and the the pandemic are two big topics that are on Americans' minds. And it's often a misconception that they're mutually exclusive so that you can only have a good economy or you can only have a good outcome of this pandemic. But contrary to that idea of a trade-off, we see that countries that suffered the most economic downturns like Peru, Spain, and the UK, 
they're generally among countries with the highest COVID-19 death rate. And on the reverse side, countries where the economic impact has been modest, like Taiwan, South Korea, and Lithuania, they've managed to keep the death rate low. So it speaks to the importance of controlling COVID as a way to also protect the economy. Yeah, and I think a lot of Americans, though it's frustrating to be in this pandemic, understand the importance of controlling this pandemic to get back to normal life. An NBC News exit poll found that 52% of voters said controlling the pandemic, even if it hurts their economy, was more important. So hopefully, you know, things will start to get better. But we're right now in one of the worst periods of the pandemic in the U.S. with just record numbers every day. So make sure you're wearing a mask and staying six feet apart and washing your hands so we can all try to tackle this pandemic together. Yeah, you really can't say it enough, especially as the weather is getting colder and flu season is increasing. And also a friendly reminder to get your flu shot if you haven't already, because the co-transmission of influenza and COVID-19. Definitely. And just to go further on what a Biden presidency would mean for healthcare in general beyond the pandemic, He's run on a platform of introducing a public health insurance option. What's a public health insurance option? Yeah. So in the U.S., insurance is often tied to someone's employment or through government programs like Medicaid or Medicare if you qualify for those programs. And Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act introduced the health insurance exchanges where people could purchase insurance in order to try to improve the access to insurance. So a public option is introducing a government-sponsored insurance to be on these exchanges that everybody could try to get, regardless of whether they're employed or not employed, have insurance that they like or don't like. This would be an option that everybody uh, could get. So the aim of this is to try to expand access to health insurance, as was the original goal of the Affordable Care Act. Biden also has plans to try to improve the affordability of prescription drugs and to increase access to contraception and protect the right to abortion. Those are just a few of his priorities and related to health care, but we'll obviously see a lot more um, once he is in office. Another set of Biden's policies that will likely impact health is the response to climate change and the environment. So if you weren't aware, the United States formally withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement on November 4th, but Biden promptly tweeted that in exactly 77 days, a Biden administration would rejoin it. And now that he has won the election, it's more clear that U.S. will plan to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. It's actually interesting because the United States formally withdrew in November, but It intended to withdraw from the agreement back in 2017. And the agreement's complex rules meant that formal notification could only be sent to the United Nations last year, followed by a 12-month notice period. So that's why there was a long wait between the intention to withdraw and the actual withdrawing. This could be its whole own episode and maybe will be in the future, but climate change has its own impact on health. And so it's important for the U.S., which is a leader in this world, to take a a part in this Paris Climate Agreement and a commitment to improve the planet that we live on right now so that 
our future generations can live healthy lives. So as we segue into the meat of today's episode, gender-based violence as a public health issue, it's worth mentioning that Joe Biden wrote the Violence Against Women Act of 1994. This act was up for reauthorization in 2019. The Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act was passed by the House, but it has not been put on the floor of the Senate yet. And Biden, in his plan, has stated that if this does not reach the floor and the Senate does not vote on this act as president, it'll be one of his priorities in his first 100 days to try to get this act passed. And we'll learn more about Title IX guidance for protections of student survivors of violence later on in the episode. But one of Biden's plans is to restore this Title IX guidance, which was rescinded by uh, the Trump administration. And he plans to do other things like strengthen social support for survivors and secure housing and provide more economic stability for survivors of violence. So let's turn it over to Sarah and Alyssa to learn more. Hi, this is Sarah Wallum. And this is Alyssa Kretz. We are two medical students at Johns Hopkins. Today, we'll be talking about violence against women and gender-based violence. As a disclaimer, we are two cisgender women who are by no means experts on this topic, but we'd like to share what we know with you all and open up this important conversation. Quick content warning before we, before we begin. This episode deals with issues of rape, sexual assault and violence, including fatal violence against women, men, and transgender and non-gender conforming individuals, and violence against black people and other people of color. If you at any point feel that you need support, you can contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233 or text LOVEIS, that's L-O-V-E-I-S, all one word, to 22522. Before we start, I want to ask you a question. Has your healthcare provider ever asked you if you feel safe in your home or if you have ever experienced violence or trauma? Keep that in mind because we'll touch on that later. Violence against women and gender-based violence are major problems in our society, both here in the U.S. and around the world. How big are these problems? Well, specifically in the U.S., an American is sexually assaulted every 73 seconds. Of these, 9 out of 10 victims are female. One in six American women have been victims of rape, either attempted or completed, during their lifetime. Women of color, particularly Black women, experience per higher rates of sexual violence. According to the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black community, one in four Black girls in the U.S. are sexually abused before age 18 and one in five Black women are survivors of rape. For every Black woman who reports a rape, there are at least 15 Black women who do not report. Gender-based violence can also have far-reaching effects. In 2019, the AMA declared violence against the transgender community an epidemic. According to the Human Rights Campaign, in the U.S. in 2019 alone, at least 25 transgender or gender non-conforming people were violently killed. 91% of those were Black women. It is likely that this is an underestimate due to underreporting and the authorities and media failing to correctly acknowledge their gender. In addition to the trauma and consequences of trauma that result from sexual violence and domestic abuse, there's also a large economic burden. 
According to the CDC, rape costs society $122,461 per victim, a total of $3 trillion. While the focus of this episode is on violence against women, it's important to note that men and boys can also be victims of abuse and sexual violence. In fact, one in 33 American men and more than one in 20 undergraduate men are victims of rape or sexual assault. These statistics are probably underestimates due to a variety of factors, including an inconsistent definition of sexual assault and outdated gender stereotypes, such as the assumption that men always want sex or that by reporting a sexual abuse, they may appear quote unquote weak. Unfortunately, this violence and trauma is being exacerbated by the current COVID-19 pandemic. Let's talk about how and why. Rates of intimate partner violence, which you may hear abbreviated as IPV, often increase during times of crisis, and the pandemic is no exception. How so? Well, helplines all over the world are receiving more calls. The U.S. National Domestic Violence Hotline had a 15% increase in contact volume in April compared to the same month last year. 15%? I would have expected a higher increase. Well, Alyssa, this increase may not seem that high, but that doesn't mean that violence isn't occurring. Survivors may feel unsafe calling for support in the presence of their abusers during quarantine. In fact, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said that while lockdowns are necessary to prevent transmission of the virus, they could potentially trap women with abusive partners. Lockdowns also exacerbate nonviolent forms of abuse including isolation from from friends and family, surveillance, and restrictions on behavior and access to basic needs. Social isolation is particularly harmful to survivors as social support is an integral part of recovering from, from trauma. Several countries imposed lockdowns without first ensuring that survivors have adequate support and resources. This led to spikes of increased domestic abuse and calls for help around 10 days after lockdowns went into effect throughout Europe. Control is central to IPV, and the pandemic has provided another avenue for abusers to gain control. Some are taking advantage of the situation to withhold financial and medical resources and sanitation items. They are also using fear of exposure to the virus and misinformation to threaten their victims and maintain this control. The pandemic has also caused decreased access to protection and resources. Many organizations that help survivors are underfunded and are impacted financially by the pandemic. Shelters may be overcrowded, have reduced capacity to follow social distancing guidelines, or even stop taking in new survivors at this time. Wow, the overarching effect of the pandemic is so unfortunate. We'll talk about specific things we can do to help survivors later in this episode. So, Alyssa, it's clear that violence, and specifically violence against women, is a public health problem. However, violence wasn't recognized formally in the U.S. until 1979 and globally by the WHO until 1996. And abusive behavior, primarily referring to domestic and interpersonal violence, was not listed as a priority of this country until 1990 in the Healthy People 2000 report. That's right, Sarah. The first national data on interpersonal violence, sexual violence, and stalking was gathered via the National Violence Against Women Survey in 1994, the same year that Congress passed the Violence Against Women Act. 
This act aimed to enact criminal justice reform and improve community-based responses to sexual violence, IPV, and stalking, among other violent and abusive acts. This bill was a big deal because it increased access to services and resources for survivors, and it brought these issues into the view of the public. This act has unfortunately been affected by the partisan nature of our government, and it has not been in effect since February 2019. Similarly, Poland may be pulling out of the Istanbul Convention, a European pact on violence against women. The Polish government thinks that this pact is too liberal because it describes gender as a social role, so the prime minister has asked the country's highest constitutional court to look into the pact. For those who are interested in learning more, you can find a more detailed history of initiatives and programs on the CDC website. So that's the history, but what about the present? Since the national presidential election in 2016, the issues of domestic violence and sexual assault have gathered a lot of press. In 2017, formal movements against sexual assault and harassment started using social media to ampli amplify their voices. This includes the hashtag MeToo movement, which was started in 2006 by a black woman named Tarana Burke and gained, tra and gained traction on social media after widespread allegations against Harvey Weinstein in 2017 as well as the Time's Up movement to fight sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace in 2018. While you would think that these movements would lead to increased protections and a change in our culture, I'm not sure that's the case. An example to demonstrate this is the change in Title IX regulations for schools, colleges, and universities. Wait, Title IX? Isn't that used for gender equality in athletics? Well, Alyssa, I'm glad you asked. Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 actually protects individuals from discrimination on the basis of multiple identities, including sex. Under Title IX, schools and universities are required to respond to educational environments that are deemed to be hostile and that prevent students from accessing their education based on their sex. While this was initially used for gender equality in athletics, sexual assault, harassment, and stalking also fall under its purview. So why is Title IX needed? Because sexual violence and assault are very prevalent on college campuses. That's right, Sara. College women aged 18 to 24 are at a three times increased risk of sexual violence. One in four undergraduate women and one in 10 students overall are victims of rape or sexual assault. One in five transgender or gender non-conforming college students have been sexually assaulted. 80% of perpetrators are known by their victims. Not only is this violence common on college campuses, but student survivors often don't have access to resources or support because less than 10% even report incidents. However, schools' responsibilities under Title IX were pretty vague until 2011. Starting in 2011, the Obama administration released federal guidelines that explained the requirements of schools under Title IX and reminded schools to take immediate and effective steps to respond to incidents. These guidelines also broadened the definition of sexual violence and required schools to designate specific Title IX coordinators to handle complaints. Advocates for survivors believe these changes were a step in the right direction. These guidelines sound great. I really appreciate how they prioritize student safety and support for survivors. Well, unfortunately, Alyssa, these guidelines have changed. In 2017, when Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, started working on a new set of regulations that would roll back much of the progress of the decade. 
Her regulations are heavily contested by advocates of survivors and researchers in this field, but they have been finalized and actually go into effect on August 14th in time for the new school year. So what are these new changes and how do they harm survivors? The regulations are pretty extensive, so I'll just mention the highlights. The definition of sexual assault has been narrowed and the responsibility of schools has been decreased. Now, schools are only required to respond to incidents that occur within their official programs on campus. This excludes events that occur off campus, including student apartments, bars and downtown districts, fraternity houses, and study abroad. Schools must also provide live hearings for investigations and allow students to be cross-examined by the other party's advisors. They're also allowed to use a higher evidentiary standard for investigations. This will make it harder for the incidents to be proved and will decrease justice for survivors overall. These changes favor the accused over survivors, reduce the responsibility of schools, and exacerbate the problems of gender inequality and violence against women in our society. Advocates worry that these changes will discourage students from reporting incidents and thus will leave more students without access to necessary resources and support. Without these resources, the mental and physical consequences of trauma and violence may not be addressed. Is there anything we can do about this? We can ask our schools and universities to uphold the previous regulations and commit to student safety and justice. These regulations allow schools to have reduced responsibility and liability, but schools can still choose to uphold the previous standards. Thank you so much for sharing that information on Title IX, Sara. So back to talking about violence against women and gender-based violence, what are the short-term and long-term effects of violence against women and gender-based violence, as well as violence in general? Well, Alyssa, sexual assault and violence have lasting negative effects on survivors. Almost half of survivors report difficulty in work or school and problems with friends or family. This can lead to decreased opportunity and overall well-being, as well as decreased social support and trust. Survivors can experience lasting effects on their mental and physical health. Almost all experience symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, within two weeks following the incident, and 30% still report symptoms nine months later. One third contemplate suicide and 13% make suicide attempts. The effects of sexual violence and trauma can also manifest in other ways, including depression, anxiety, substance use, and eating disorders. Survivors are also at increased risk of pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections. Violence and abuse are one form of trauma, and there's a lot of research that demonstrates the negative effects of trauma on health. Research from early childhood trauma, which you may hear referred to as adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, demonstrates that trauma is associated with chronic health problems such as cancer, diabetes, and heart disease later in life. ACEs are also associated with a variety of societal and social factors that can impact health, including living in under-resourced neighborhoods, experiencing food insecurity, or suffering from prolonged stress. It is important to note that the definition of trauma encompasses a wide range of experiences and includes such, tra such chronic trauma as living within systems of white supremacy, racism, classism, ableism, and sexism. Thank you for that information on trauma, Alyssa. So we've talked a lot about violence against women, how prevalent it is, 
its relevance to the pandemic and other current events, and its effects. What are we doing about it as a country? Well, in 2001, the CDC established rape and domestic violence prevention and education programs with funding for all 50 states, DC, and Puerto Rico. Throughout the 2000s, the CDC also launched several educational initiatives to prevent unhealthy relationship behaviors, dating abuse, and dating violence. Much of this preventive effort was geared towards teenagers to promote healthy relationship behaviors early on. The CDC also has several recommendations for preventing childhood trauma, and some of these recommendations are applicable to violence and abuse in general. First, they recommend strengthening economic support to families. It is widely accepted that stress can precipitate violence and abuse, and as we've talked about, the current pandemic is just one example. Next, they call for campaigns to educate the public and promote protective social norms. This includes campaigns to raise awareness for sexual violence and abuse, legislation to protect survivors, and enact criminal justice reform to better respond to incidents of violence, like the Violence Against Women Act, and bystander intervention training for allies. They also suggest increasing support for victim-centered services like counseling, therapy, shelters, and legislative services. There are several national and local organizations that advocate for survivors and provide them with necessary services. These include hotlines that survivors can call in times of distress and local rape crisis centers that provide real-time help to survivors. We'll talk more about specific resources at the end of this episode. That's right, Alyssa. To give you an example, I volunteered as an advocate for a local rape crisis center during college. I was on call a few times a month, and during my calls, I manned our 24-7 hotline. When individuals called, I helped them with whatever they needed in the moment. This ranged from providing information on our services to listening to and being there for survivors. I also responded to incidents at my local hospitals. Whenever a survivor reported an incident to a hospital, EI, a hospital ER, I or another advocate would go and help them navigate the various processes involved. This included the forensic exam, rape kit, law enforcement questioning, and more. I share this example just to show that there are so many great organizations that are providing these services to survivors, often for free. Just Google your city and local rape crisis center to find local organizations to support. I hope all this information has shown that violence against women is within our scope of physicians and other health professionals. Let's talk about some specific ways we, as medical students and future healthcare professionals, can help. First, we must learn to identify situations of violence and intervene to the best of our ability. This must include individuals of all genders who are affected by gender-based violence and patriarchal hierarchies. In order to recognize and identify these situations, we must be educated on trauma and trauma-informed care, and we must have the opportunity to practice having difficult conversations about trauma and safety. The core tenets of trauma-informed care can be remembered by the four R's. One, realize the impact of trauma. Two, recognize signs and symptoms of trauma in patients, family, and staff. Three, respond by fully integrating this knowledge into every policy, procedure, and practice in your hospital, clinic, or wherever you practice. Four, resist re-traumatization actively. There are two specific models for implementing trauma-informed care that we would urge you to look at. 
The first is the Sanctuary Model by Dr. Sandra Bloom, and the second is the Six Core Strategies Curriculum. To clarify, trauma-informed care is not therapy for patients who have a history of trauma. It is the practice of creating safe spaces for all patients and taking active steps to not trigger patients' memories and experiences of abuse. This is important given the prevalence of trauma in the overall population. One action item that I will try to implement throughout my education and career is making the practice of asking the same question I asked you all at the beginning of this episode. Do you feel safe at home? Regardless of the patient's age, sex, gender, race, ethnicity, chief concern, or any other identifying characteristics, I want to ask every future patient this question so my personal biases do not impact patient care and safety. As a second-year medical student, I find that asking patients about their personal lives can be quite difficult. So by consciously asking every patient a variation of this question, I hope to make this a lifelong habit. Wow, so this has been a pretty heavy topic. Like we mentioned earlier, there are numerous local and national resources for survivors and the friends and family of survivors. Here are just a few. The first is the National Domestic Violence Hotline that I mentioned earlier, which is a 24-hour hotline. To contact them, you can call 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. For those who do not feel safe or comfortable calling, you can also chat with an advocate by texting Love Is. that's L-O-V-E-I-S, all one word, to 22522, or by going to thehotline.org. Another resource is the Anti-Violence Project, a 24-hour hotline for LGBTQ plus individuals experiencing abuse or hate-based violence. To contact them, call 212-714-1141. For those of you located in Maryland, you can also call the 24-hour hotline at House of Ruth, Maryland, an organization that helps survivors of domestic abuse and violence by calling 410-889-7884. If you know a survivor, there are small steps you can take to help them during the pandemic. Encourage survivors to practice self-care and look after their health and well-being. Help them focus on things they can control and on ways to cultivate hope. Connect with and check in on them. You can help bridge the social isolation gap that the pandemic has created. See if you can be part of their safety plans via regularly scheduled calls or emergency text systems. Thank you all for tuning in today to learn about violence against women. And thank you to the following organizations from which we gathered the information presented in this podcast. The Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network or RAIN, National Sexual Violence Resource Center, the Centers for Disease Control, United Nations, National Domestic Violence Hotline, New York Times, Know Your Nine, Human Rights Campaign, and the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community. Hope to see you all next time.